All right, I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7. John 7, starting in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me, because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. I'll sense the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you again for the privilege of drawing us together as your people. We thank you for providing us the space that we can meet and the freedom to meet here without fear. Father, we pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word. Pray that you would do what only you can. Lord, open up our ears, our eyes, our hearts, and our minds that we would receive your truth for what it is. Father, we pray that you would help us to get past whatever distractions, whatever things may be on our hearts and minds that we bring here this morning. I'll be able to put them aside and truly look to your word to truly commune with you. Lord, we pray that uh, this would be glorifying and pleasing in your sight, and may we be edified and built up through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up again with our series in John, uh, picking up where we left off in chapter 7. Now, to set the stage for today, to look at where we're going with today's passage, we actually need to back up all the way to chapter 5. If you remember, Jesus there had healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, and this had sparked some controversy uh, for two reasons. Firstly, because Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath day, and then secondly, in the discussion that followed, Jesus then made some statements about his own authority and his relationship to the Father, which then resulted in the Jews deciding that they needed to seek to kill him. Chapter 7, verse 1, informed us that this then was the reason why Jesus had been hanging out in the rural areas of Galilee and avoiding Judea, knowing that the Jews in Judea were seeking to kill him. Jesus, however, did go up to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles and began teaching in the temple, explaining that his teaching was from the Father, as Josh just read for us, and that if anyone's will was to do the will of the Father, they would then know whether or not Christ's teaching was from God. And so that brings us to our text this morning, starting from verse 19. Jesus challenges them, 
Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. First off, Jesus accuses his hearers, this crowd in front of him, of being lawbreakers. None of you keeps the law. Remember, Jesus had just said that those whose will was to do the Father's will are those who will know if Christ's teachings are from God. God's will, of course, is revealed through God's holy law. So to follow Jesus' logic here, if Jesus' hearers, his audience, if they truly were law keepers, if they truly and honestly wanted to do the will of God, that would then cause them to recognize that Jesus' teaching and ministry is of one accord with God's law. Now, this relationship between Jesus and the law is one of the areas that I believe many modern evangelicals make mistakes. Jesus is sometimes presented as if he is coming to overturn and overthrow the law of God, right? as if it was somehow Jesus against the law. Notice what we see here is that Jesus explains that if his hearers had truly been seeking to know and to do God's will, that is, if they had been true law keepers, they would then have recognized that his teachings and ministries were from God, that they were in alignment with God's law. And so the implication is, we follow from this, the very fact that these people thought Jesus' teachings and actions were so far out of step with how they understood the law, this demonstrates that they had radically missed the point. Once again, in the debates between Jesus and the Jews of his day, whose side is Moses on? Whose side is the law on? Who really keeps God's law? Remember what Jesus said, if you believed Moses, right, if you were truly listening to and following Moses, you would believe me. For he, Moses, wrote of me, Christ. John 5, 46. If you had really believed Moses, you would believe Jesus. If your will had really been to do the will of the Father, you would then have accepted Jesus' teachings. For you would have seen that they were from the Father. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Now, aside from the fact that they rejected his teaching, which proves it already, Jesus gives further evidence that they are lawbreakers. Why do you seek to kill me? Right? The very fact that they were seeking to murder an innocent man clearly demonstrates that they were not law keepers. Kids, what is the sixth commandment? You shall not murder, right? By extension, you shall not plot murder. You shall not seek to commit murder. Jesus even takes that a step further. You shall not even hate your brother 
in your heart, right? Whatsoever tendeth thereunto, whatever would lead you toward murder. Um, So Jesus was innocent. In fact, Jesus was the only person in all of history who had perfectly kept all of God's commandments. He was therefore the living embodiment of the Torah, right? Perfect law-keeping put on display, the perfect image of obedience. And the Jews saw him and sought to murder him on the grounds that he was a lawbreaker. See how far they were off from the point. The crowd answered him, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Right, so this crowd being a mixed crowd, being comprised of more people than only those authorities who were seeking to kill him, the crowd responds to his charge by saying, you're demon-possessed. There's nobody trying to kill you. They accuse Jesus of being raving mad, like a man possessed by an evil spirit, perhaps paranoid, suffering from delusions of grandeur, seeing conspiracy around every corner. They accuse him, you have A demon. Now, we need to see that this is a very, very serious accusation. It is a very heinous sin. And this whole setup here shows how the world has things upside down and backwards. Right? The only perfect lawkeeper to ever walk the earth was accused of being a law breaker. The most holy man who has ever walked this planet, God the Son, come down from heaven, taken on human flesh, walking the earth, and the crowds accuse him of being demonic. Isaiah 5, verse 20 says, Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Do we not still see the same thing in our own day? Or does the world not still have things completely upside down? Consider what culture, what secular culture considers to be good and what they consider to be evil. Sexual sin and depravity being celebrated as good and beautiful. Murder of the unborn, abortion. Murder of the elderly or of just anybody who wants, euthanasia. Promoted as health care. Consider that those who engage the darkness of this world with the light and love of the gospel are considered to be hateful, spiteful, and bigoted. We see true righteousness spurned, sin and depravity celebrated as morally good. Woe unto them who call evil good and good evil. Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. Do not let the world convince you They have things backwards. Woe to those who would condemn the eternal Son of the living God 
as a demon-possessed rambler. Let's continue on. Verses 21 and 23. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? And we get a few things here we need to get the context of. Uh, Jesus firstly refers back to this healing that he had performed on the Sabbath. And then he gives a biblical and theological defense, uh, an argument to prove that he is, in fact, not a Sabbath breaker. Now, just to give the context of all these things, uh, for those of you who may be new to the scriptures, the Sabbath was the day of rest that God had ordained. Right, just as God in creation worked for six days and then rested one when he had completed his work, so also then he commanded his people to follow this pattern of work and rest. And it's actually why we have a seven-day week. Um, the Sabbath was later then said to even function as a sign of the covenant between God and Israel. And so the Sabbath was to be kept holy to the Lord. Employers could not make their employees or servants work 24-7 with no breaks. God's law required that all be given this blessing of a day of rest. God instructed them to rest from their ordinary work. So that's the Sabbath. Jesus then argues, uh, references back to circumcision. This was another Ordinance. Now, I'll spare the gory details, but going all the way back to Abraham, which was 400 years before Moses, right? Jesus says circumcision came from the fathers, not from Moses. So he's referencing back Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, God had instructed Abraham and all of his descendants to circumcise their sons on the eighth day after their birth. Now, when the eighth day after birth landed on a Sabbath, you've now got a bit of a dilemma, right? What takes precedence here? It would seem now that either way you have to violate a command, right? Do you obey the command to circumcise on the eighth day and thus seem to break the Sabbath command? Or do you obey the command to rest and avoid work on the Sabbath and thus break the command to circumcise on the eighth day? Now, Scripture gives no specific instructions about what to do in such a case, but it's clear from this text that the regular practice of the Jews was, in fact, to circumcise on the eighth day, even if that day was a Sabbath. And Jesus seems to affirm that this was not an example of law-breaking. Right? He, he affirms that this is what they did so that the law may not be broken. So then Jesus uses this practice of the Jews of circumcising even on the eighth day in order to create a lesser to the greater argument. Notice this is a how much more type of argument. You see Jesus and Paul, uh, this gets used through the epistles, through the New Testament a fair bit. Uh, Jesus says, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision 
so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Now, D.A. Carson gives some background and notes that circumcision was viewed as a perfecting rite. Right? One member of the body, by this rite, was perfected, right? it was made, made whole, and it had to be perfected on the eighth day. So Jesus then argues, if you can do this on the Sabbath day, perfecting one part of the body, how much more valid, right? how much more important, significant is it to make a man's whole body well? So Jesus points out that even in their own practices, they understood this category, right? That certain things take precedence in God's law, in God's mind. When faced with a conflict, like circumcision falling on the Sabbath, right? Jesus points out they know what takes precedence and that in so doing, you are not violating the Sabbath by obeying God's other command. So they have this category But we see through the Gospels that this is one area where the Pharisees in particular show time and time again that they were masters at missing the point. Verse 24, Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The A. Carson writes again, They have misconstrued Christ's character by a fundamentally flawed set of deductions from Old Testament law, an approach that turns out to be superficial and far too committed to mere appearances. If their approach to God's will were one of faith, they would soon discern that Jesus is not a Sabbath breaker, but is the one who fulfills both both circumcision and the Sabbath. So notice that although they had this category in their minds that certain things in the law take precedence, this seems to be one of the areas where they really, really struggled. They struggled in applying it correctly. For example, in Mark chapter 7, you can actually turn with me there. Mark chapter 7, I think it's verse 11. I didn't write it down. Jesus gets into a debate with the Pharisees here about the tradition of the ceremonial washing of hands. And they accuse Jesus of breaking the traditions of their elders. And Jesus responds to them, Mark 7, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So here's one of these examples, one of these illustrations of where the Pharisees missed the point, where they didn't apply this concept of precedence properly. And it was known as the Korban rule. So God, in the fifth commandment, 
requires something. Children, what does God require in the fifth commandment? What is the fifth commandment? It is honor your father and your mother. If there's one commandment kids know, it'll be that one, right? Honor your father and your mother. And so, for those with elderly parents now living in need, what would the fifth commandment require of godly children? To care for their elderly and needy parents. But what the Corban rule allowed people to do was to be released from their duty to their parents by saying that whatever their parents would have received from them, it is now Korban. It is given to God. It is now going to be an offering to the temple dedicated to God. Now it's true that God did call for giving to the temple. Right? People could make vows Right, binding themselves to give something to God. Uh, they could give free will offerings to the temple. But notice that God also requires children to honor their father and their mother. Now see how they missed the priorities. They missed God's points in this. What this tradition did was it took a voluntary offering to the temple and treated it as if it was more significant than the fifth commandment. As Calvin put it, men were taught to regard it as a more heinous sin not to make a free will offering than to defraud a parent of what was justly due to him. In short, what the law of God declared to be voluntary was, in the estimation of the scribes, of higher value than one of the most important of the commandments of God, close quote. See again how they miss the point. Giving to God certainly appears pious outwardly. But if it comes at the cost of doing that which God has commanded, at the cost of doing that which truly pleases God, then you have entirely missed the points that God was teaching. Matthew 6, verse 2, Jesus says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Robbing your parents of help from you so that you can give to God is a classic example of false piety. It may have the outward appearance of holiness as you sanctimoniously tell your parents, sorry, this is for the Lord. You may gain the approval of others. You may be praised by the Pharisees and the scribes for your godliness and piety in giving to God. But as Jesus points out, it is simply just a nullifying of the commandment of God for the sake of human tradition. Here's what they missed. Taking care of your parents, honoring father and mother, obeying God's law, keeping the fifth commandment, is giving to God. It's not flashy. It's usually done in secret and therefore won't earn you the praises of others but this is what true piety looks like. This is what true godliness looks like. 
This is what truly pleases your heavenly Father. You nullify the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. And Jesus said, and many such things you do. Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. The Pharisees would tithe from their herb gardens. Right? What is tithing? We're giving 10%. Right? They would tithe to their herb garden. So you can just picture somebody uh, weighing out the dill that they got from their garden and their window box, making sure that they can tithe 10% of their herbs, but then neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Here's some vivid imagery. Just picture somebody going over their oatmeal with a magnifying glass, trying to pull out the smallest imperfection, making sure we're not going to miss any gnats. Meanwhile, there is a camel sitting on the table that they somehow missed in all of their inspections. They were masters at missing the point. What was God aiming at in all of these laws? What was the purpose of the free will offerings? Why did God require the tithe? He wanted his people to learn how to give. To be generous. To be free-handed. He wanted his people to learn how to give. Now, had they properly understood God's intentions... The very last thing they would ever do is to rob from their needy parents for a show of false piety. Matthew 9, 13, Jesus quotes God speaking in Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So the Pharisees had this category of certain things taking precedence in God's law, as was displayed by their willingness to circumcise on the Sabbath. But they consistently failed to apply it correctly. To tithe from your herb garden while being merciless, faithless, and unjust is to miss the point. To neglect your aging, needy parents for the sake of false piety by giving it to God misses the point. And so had they been true law keepers, had it truly been their will to do the will of God, they would have seen how perfectly Jesus embodied Torah observance. Consider too, what was the purpose of the Sabbath? It was a day of rest. A day to be kept holy to the Lord. God did limit what his people were allowed to do on the Sabbath, but this too was for their own benefit. As Jesus declared, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
It was given for man to be a blessing to man. It was considered one of Israel's feasts. It was rest from work. And it was commanded for our good because many of us, without the command, would run ourselves ragged. Let's be honest. It was given for the good of those under authority. For many would run their employees ragged. And so even servants and slaves were to be given a day of rest in Israel. It was to be a blessing. And so if circumcision, the perfecting of one member of a young man, was permissible on the Sabbath, then how much greater the perfecting of the whole man, making the whole man well. If this category of making whole is so valuable an activity that it can be done to just one member, then how much more, how much greater, how much more permissible must it be to make the entire body whole? See how the Pharisees missed the point. They did not keep the law. They were plotting murder. Consider, they apparently thought that healing a man was off limits on the Sabbath, but plotting to murder an innocent man was okay. They apparently saw that to be an acceptable Sabbath activity. Why did they miss things so badly? Think of simply this. They did not know God. They did not understand his character or his nature, and as a result, repeatedly missed the purposes for the laws that God was giving. My brothers and sisters, we are not immune to this danger. Legalism, in various forms, is alive and well today. As one of my professors used to say, we all have a little inner legalist. The legalist, the legalist focuses on externals. Now, there's different types of legalists. One of them is the type who is looking for their checklist. Right? What boxes must I check? They can be driven by different things for this. But frequently it is not by the desire to know and please God but rather by the desire to find the minimum requirements. Sometimes they are wanting to know, what can I get away with? What is the bare minimum I need to do in order to be technically still in compliance with this command? How far can I go? This isn't technically off limits. I found a loophole. This will be the approach that is taken by those for whom God's law is still an external standard. How many Sundays in a row or Sundays in a month can I skip church before I'm guilty of neglecting the assembly? Hebrews 10.25 What's the bare minimum that I need to give so as to qualify as a cheerful giver? 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. How far is too far with my girlfriend before it becomes sexual immorality? 1 Corinthians 6, 19. 
I hope we can see these are all the wrong questions. Approaching things in this way will always miss the point that God was aiming at, very much like the Pharisees did. We ought to ask instead, what is God's purpose in giving this command? Why is this fence here? Before we dismiss it, before we remove it, before we find a way around it, it would be very wise if we knew its purpose. You can think we're like young boys out exploring a field who come to a fence, and on the gate of the fence is a sign that says, Do not enter. The boys talk it over, and they figured that climbing over the fence was not technically the same thing as entering through the gate. So technically, they reasoned, they could climb over the fence and not disobey what the sign said. And so they did, and they kept on walking and laughing until they saw something that made them stop dead in their tracks. There in front of them, staring them down, pawing at the ground, was the biggest, beefiest, angriest looking bull that they had ever seen in their lives. The technicalities they had reasoned out for themselves didn't seem to mean all that much anymore. Instead of asking, how far can I go? Instead of finding loopholes and technicalities, ask instead, why is this fence here? Why the sign on the gate? What is God aiming at in the commandment that he has given What is he trying to produce in his people? What's the purpose? Brothers and sisters, do not make the mistake of the Pharisees. They missed the point largely because they don't know God. They didn't know God. The more you get to know of your Father in heaven, but as you learn more of his character, of who he is, the easier it will become to know what he likes and dislikes. Then instead of asking, how far is too far? How far can I go and still technically be within the bounds of this rule? You would ask instead, would my father in heaven like this? Would he be pleased By this action? Does this align with what I know of his nature and character? And so, the better that you know him, the more familiar you are with his character, the easier it will be to know his will in any given situation. And we learn of his character and nature through his word, through his own self revelation. This is where God has revealed. This is what I am like. This is what pleases me. This is what displeases me. So let us go to the word. Not to make a list of boxes for us to check. Not to find loopholes that would allow us to indulge our sinful flesh. But to learn the character and nature of God that we may seek his will and truly desire to do it. Now, this is one of the great blessings 
of the new covenant. For those who are in Christ, he has completely transformed our relationship to the law. Turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31, a great prophecy of the new covenant that God was going to make. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant he will make. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In this passage, we have one of the greatest images describing the difference between the Old and New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, the law was external. While God did, of course, regenerate some under the Old Covenant, right? We have righteous people who had true faith in God, who did partake of these New Covenant realities. Notice that membership in the Old Covenant itself did not guarantee these benefits. Although it was always what God was pointing to, prefiguring and calling for, circumcision of the flesh did not guarantee circumcision of the heart. And so for many, the law remained external. It was written on tablets of stone. Think of those stones Moses took down from Mount Sinai. Written on tablets of stone and then stored in the Ark of the Covenant. Right, the, holy, the holy box contained in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place in the tabernacle. Now, in contrast, in the New Covenant, God has promised to write this law on the hearts of his people. Now, the law's demands truly are more than what we can meet. The law demands perfection. What does James say? If you keep the whole law but stumble in one point, you become guilty of all of it. We are fallen in Adam. By nature, we have sinful hearts. And so law-keeping, hear me closely, law-keeping is not a path to salvation for us. But our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has taken the penalty that we all deserve for our law-breaking. He has also fulfilled all the positive demands of God's law, living the righteous life that we must live in order to stand before God, be accepted in his presence. So by faith, we are credited with Christ's perfect law-keeping. 
We are forgiven through his substitutionary death in our place. We are then counted righteous in Christ. And so the law of God no longer stands over us threatening judgment. For Christ has taken that judgment upon himself. God's law is no longer a daunting, unattainable standard, but it has been kept for us by Christ. And now see the transformation. All who are in Christ, who have had their sin and iniquity forgiven through his finished work, all who are in Christ, who are true new covenant members, now have this law written on their hearts. In Jeremiah 31, we see that it was not the content of the law that was promised to change, but rather the location of the law. No longer simply on tablets of stone in the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, but now on the hearts of God's new covenant people, on the hearts of every true new covenant member, those who are the new dwelling place of God on earth who dwells in his people by his Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, you who are in Christ, you who have the law written on your hearts, let us not substitute deep heart obedience with mere formalism. Let us not miss the heart of what God was aiming at in his commands. But let us seek to do the will of God can be very easy to substitute deep-seated heart obedience with mere externals. So let us hear the warning of Christ from this text. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. It is much easier to tithe from your herb garden than to live out a merciful, faithful, and righteous life. It is much easier to give to the temple than to go and provide care for your needy parents. It's much easier to simply show up to church on Sunday than to truly move and prepare your heart to commune with God. It's much easier to give a set percentage every month than it is to become a genuinely free-handed and generous person. It is much easier to declare yourself a complementarian than to be a truly godly husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's much easier to call yourself complementarian than it is to become a genuinely submissive and godly wife. In all that we do out of obedience to God, we must remember that God is not trying to create scrupulous box checkers. We must never substitute deep heart obedience for mere externals. It does no good to simply clean the outside of the dish while the inside remains filthy. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, 
that the outside may also be clean. Christ has cleansed us from the inside. Let us seek the heart of God. Let us live out our Christian lives as those who have God's law written on our hearts. Let us truly seek to do the will of our Father. And in all of our obedience, let us remember what God is truly aiming at. The gospel of grace is not aiming to produce more Pharisees. God is not aiming at fussy, self-righteous box checkers. Do not fall into the traps of false piety. But let us pursue true piety. True godliness. Not using our forgiveness and freedom as a license to sin or to ignore the commands of God. But to live as those in whom the law has become internalized. Those who now want to please their father. Those who would seek to find what God is aiming at in all the instructions that he gives. And those who would seek to live that out consistently. Let us be joyful, free-handed, thankful, patient, loving, obedient, and kind. Brothers and sisters, be who you really are in Christ. Amen.